things that are really beautiful are the ones that last. So the lovers on the urn who are just about to kiss for eternity, that's beautiful because they'll never fade, they'll never change. Be beautiful. Don't let the cynicism and irony and jaded hipsterness of our age convince you that beauty isn't eternal. Mm -hmm. Beautiful things will always be beautiful and therefore true. Hello, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Danny about the poetry of John Keats. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you to develop your powers of poetic empathy. The quote of the day comes from Keats's letters. Like Dickinson, he's a poet whose letters are really absolutely required reading. This is a very famous moment in Keats's letters that has kind of entered English literature and literary criticism in general. I'd like to read it in its full context. I'm talking about Keats's idea of negative capability. So here is the full context of that quote. This is Keats speaking in a letter. I had not a dispute, but a disquisition with Dilke upon various subjects. Several things dovetailed in my mind, and at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability, that is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Coleridge, for instance, would let go by a fine, isolated verisimilitude caught from the penetralium of mystery, from being incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge. This, pursued through volumes, would perhaps take us no further than this, that with a great poet the sense of beauty overcomes every other consideration, or rather obliterates all consideration. Negative capability as a phrase itself is hard to understand without Keats's definition and explanation of it. He means the ability that some people have to be capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, and not be irritable and reach after fact and reason. There's a slight, or maybe not so slight, mockery of Coleridge here and his penetraliums of mystery, Coleridge renowned for his love of German philosophy. And Keats says that if you are like Coleridge and are incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge, this doesn't get you very far. A person like this would read book after book and would still be left with the fact that beauty overcomes every other consideration of poetry. Beauty is uncertain, it is mysterious, full of doubt, is not reducible to fact or reason. Why am I choosing this as the quote of the day? Well, to write poetry means to spend your life in uncertainty and mystery and doubt, and absolutely not in possession of any facts or reason. I don't think great poets know how poems get made or where poems come from. I think Keats is right to say that Shakespeare surprised himself, embraced mystery, walked into some kind of dark uncertainty, and found there, somehow, you know, Hamlet and King Lear. Never being able to come back and report to the rest of us how he found them, what he did, how this could be recreated. Proof of this 
can be found in Keats's poems himself. Not all of Keats's poems are as good as each other. Sometimes we just get lucky, and the process of lucky poetic composition is a complete mystery. I think also as, as a reader of poetry, this is an important thing to keep in mind. Beauty overcomes every other consideration. It obliterates all else. Why do we read poems? Because they're beautiful. What do you need to look for in the poetry that you read? Beauty. How can you explain to somebody else why a poet that you love is worth reading? Because they're beautiful. I don't think any other commentary or interpretation or explanation is ever really required. And for more beauty and mystery and uncertainty and doubt and poetic luck, let's go into that chat about Keats with me and Danny. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Managed to get any sleep the past few days? Uh... Managed to put um, your phone down for more than five minutes? You probably have more self-control than me. <laughs> no, I, I probably don't. <laughs> I've been very uh, glued to the screens. So. Yes, as we as we all have. Um, people expecting, you know, the counts in Pennsylvania and uh, Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, to come in today-ish, I think, maybe soon. Yeah. Who knows? I guess we'll see, but... I don't know. It's been tense. I don't think I've been alive where an election has happened that's lasted this long. So. And that seems to be this, I mean, they say this every year, but because only it's true every year, it seems to be this, where there's this much at stake, you know? Yeah. But I'm very happy we don't have time to talk about the election. Luckily, yeah. you know, we should we should savor the chance that we have to carve out an island of non-election, non-politics an island of poetry and beauty and truth mm-hmm. in which we don't talk about this stupid mm-hmm. thing. But um, yeah, I've been very happy with the fact that it seems to have gone okay. No crazy, like rioting. Yeah. The system as creaky as it is seems to be working, which I'm very pleased about. Yeah, me too. And I hope it stays that way. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll keep our fingers crossed. So, uh, so much to squeeze into only an hour. Mm-hmm. What? What do you think we should talk about? What poems do you think we should talk about? What do you think needs to be highlighted in this short little time? Yeah, why do you like Keats? So I I was kind of throwing back to our 319 class. We talked about Keats there too. And for much of the same reasons that we talked about there, I found myself liking him more. But I just adore that... So much of his imagery appeals to so many senses. Like, I can smell his poems and I can taste them. And I'm not just looking at something, but it's like a full, a full body experience. I get that in like the very first poem in uh, I Stood Tiptoe Upon a Little Hill and in Ode to a Nightingale. I also like the sort of introspection that he does, the questioning, the contemplation on these heavy things, like, I know I'm going to die, so let's let's talk about death and what that means for me. And it's it's very capital R romantic in, mm. in that way. I, I also like that you know, he talks to nature and not just about it, 
talking to the nightingale that's it's such a beautiful yeah conversation is he's not just saying like oh and talking to the urn as well but he's not just saying like oh like this urn is really cool and let me tell you why he's like let me like engage in a dialogue with this thing <laughs> it's really fun i i think we should definitely hit ode to a nightingale and ode on aggression urn um for sure and then probably to autumn yeah i think uh, so I don't know. I, I'm a fan of a lot of the things that happen in I Stood Tiptoe Upon a Little Hill. We could go to that if if we have time, maybe. But I don't know. There's so many. There's there's so much good here. This so. is also great. You've already laid out, I think, a sufficient menu for the next hour. Just So to summarize the menu, to mm -hmm. summarize the, the path forward, yes, we, we absolutely should talk about Nightingale, The Urn, Autumn, those are probably his three best poems. Mm -hmm. We should also probably talk about, I, I, I'm very pleased that you want to go to some other maybe less known poems. We should do that too, because I mean, these three poems, these three odes deserve a lifetime's worth of attention, but so do some of his other poems. So let's try yeah. to hit, you know, some of those. That's great. What you say about imagery is so spot on. We will, we'll be talking about that this whole hour, the lushness he says in this, in this very, precocious letter to Percy Bysshe Shelley, who's older than him, mm -hmm. more famous. He says to Percy, Percy Bysshe Shelley, your poems are good, but you should try loading every rift with ore. Yeah. You know, in other words, like squeeze in. So you, it's just such a great image. You have a boat and it has a limited capacity and there's like empty space in the boat. There's some stuff you don't need in the boat. Get rid of all that and just cram it with gold. Yeah. Every little space in the poem the poem is only so big, but every little space has to be full of gold. There's no one better at cramming a poem with ore than Keats, I think. So we can talk about specific instances of that. Also, we absolutely must hit up and elaborate on what you say regarding the questioning. Such a good point. I think this might be what separates the good Keats poems <clears throat> from the bad Keats poems. And yeah, I also want to talk about like how, why good Keats is good and why not good Keats is not good, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. I've said this in an email, but well, every poet is is like this, I suppose, to some degree. Every great poet with a capital G, every great poet doesn't always write greatly. Mm -hmm. And I'm very fascinated by this phenomenon. How is a mind that is capable of writing Ode to a Nightingale not capable of writing Ode to a Nightingale every single time? Mm -hmm. So I don't have an answer to that question, but I would like to spend five or ten minutes with you brainstorming possible answers. Let's go to not one of the famous poems first. So you wanted to talk about which poem first? So just the, the first one in this little, there's no- I, I stood tiptoe upon a little hill. You, It's quite long. Yeah. Um, read maybe your best bits, the praiseworthy bits. Okay. Um, I'm going to cut into some stanzas, but just at the end of the first one, I straightway began to pluck a posy of luxuries, bright, milky, soft, and rosy. And then a bush of mayflowers with the bees about them. Ah, sure, no tasteful nook would be without them. And let a lush laburnum oversweep them and let long grass grow around the roots to keep them. I, I'm a big fan of the rhyme that happens in this. Okay how like the last four syllables of those first two lines are all rhyming with each other. 
And then... Well, can I keep reading? Don't, yeah, don't move on yet. Round the roots to keep them moist, cool, and green, and shade the violets, so good. that they may bind the moss in leafy nets, a filbert hedge with wild briar overtwined, and clumps of woodbine taking the soft wind upon their summer thrones. There too should be the frequent checker of a youngling tree. It's like already here in the yeah. early Keats, we have this addiction it's a kind of drug addiction to the beauties of nature Mm -hmm. not just the beauties of nature but the beauties of giving language to nature naming nature and its lushness okay sorry keep going i think there's a similarly beautiful nature imagey passage um it starts spangler of clouds yep i'm with you okay Halo of crystal rivers, mingler with leaves and dew and tumbling streams, closer of lovely eyes to lovely dreams, <laughs> lover of loneliness and wandering, of upcast eye and tender pondering. And then it, it continues further down. And when a tale is beautifully stayed, we feel the safety of a hawthorn glade. When it is moving on luxurious wings, the soul is lost in pleasant smotherings. Fair dewy roses brush against our faces. Mm. That's so good. Like, I feel the rose hitting my face when I read that. And then, I mean, it just keeps going. The voice of crystal bubbles, walking upon the white clouds wreathed and curled. Like, that's so lush, the texture that I get from that. And also, oh, how good is this? (laughs) Overhead, we see the jasmine and sweet briar and bloomy grapes laughing from green attire. Yeah. Bloomy grapes. Not blooming. Bloomy. Yeah. Wow. I just, I don't know. Like, I know this is one of his earlier poems, but I'm still caught asking myself, like, how did you do that, John Keats? That's that's really great. Um, well, how did he do it? I mean, bloomy, I mean, we can't read the mind of the dead, but first of all, you could describe grapes as purple. You could describe grapes as sweet. There's all these cliche expected ways to describe grapes, but blooming, yeah, they have a blossom. You know, they do bloom. So that is one aspect of them that we tend to forget. But then even that's not unexpected enough. He has to change blooming to bloomy. And the vowel combination, we get this long ooh, blue, and then e, and then a. So we go, we could talk about vowel sounds more, but we go from long vowels to short vowels and the, this, this two word phrase, which is so great. Mm-hmm. Those were the main things that I had highlighted. I'm a big fan of the last two lines just because I think they're very pretty. I don't know if we need to talk about them necessarily, but in like the passage of an angel's tear that falls through the clear ether silently, I think is really lovely. Yeah. Um, But no, I I think with this poem, it's mostly that one instance of rhyme towards the beginning and just the great nature imagery that's that's going on throughout this. Um, But I'm very happy that you brought us here first, because we, like I say, we do have Keats in embryo. The soul is lost in pleasant smotherings is a line you highlighted. Another Mm -hmm. line you highlighted is closer of lovely eyes to lovely dreams. So... In one of Keats's early poems, we have a person who's obsessed with nature, but also obsessed with this kind of half-sleep, half-waking, closer of lovely eyes to lovely dreams and pleasant smotherings. It could be that pleasant smotherings is the Keats phrase. Yeah. Maybe. You know what I mean? Like, what else is 
Ode to a Nightingale, but this sequence of pleasant smotherings, he longs for a beaker of the full of the warm south. He wants to kind of be smothered by alcohol and he's smothered by these flowers, smothered by sleep, you know, all of these, he's half in love with easeful death. There's a kind of pleasant smothering that we're tempted towards in death. Loading every rift with ore, we get these tight little cozy boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, let's do the Grecian urn first. I don't know if we have time to read all of these. What was I going to say? I was going to say something too. Oh, also within this hour, another destination on this map that I want to include is how we in the 21st century can could be influenced by him because he does have this kind of antique sound. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> romantic, as you say, with a capital R. So I'd love if we could either intersperse throughout our conversation or carve off some time to devote to, yeah, things that we can steal, techniques we can learn, attitudes that we can adopt that are Keatsian, you know, any anything that we can learn from him. Sure. So maybe let's not read all of Ode to a Grecian Urn so that we can read all of the others. But what what do you think is are the best moments in Ode to a Grecian Urn? Or what do you think makes this a great capital G poem? All the hard questions. I know. Or what, yeah, what can it teach you about how to write poems in 2020? I think the first thing is that it's it's okay to think about very lofty and difficult ideas and to write about them. I think in this this poem, I I definitely get the sense that, that Keats is thinking about things like death and permanence and what it means to be beautiful, especially in the in the last stanza, beauty is truth, truth beauty. Like the beautiful things are the, the ones that are unchanging, the things that are eternal. And maybe it's just that we need to give ourselves permission to write about these things and, yeah. and even speak directly to them or, or objects that represent them like Keats does here with the urn. Yeah, I think that's great. It is true that he tackles large abstract concepts like death, time, beauty, and truth. But for the most part, he's looking at an object and most of the poem is ground, quite grounded in this object. So this is already a lesson for the rest of us. You must make your poem, you must aim your poem at large, abstract, important ideas. Otherwise, it won't become something that all humans everywhere find worth rereading. But you, I think, probably the most tried and true technique of doing this is to ground it in a physical object. So find a physical object. I don't want to use the word symbol. I'll only use the word symbol to say that we should not use this word symbol. Because the Grecian urn is not a symbol. It's an urn. It's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it stands for nothing but itself, right? But staring at this object for long enough and savoring the details on it, as we'll go into here in a minute, does teach you very important things about time and timelessness and beauty. I mean, even the first line, it's very strange. Yeah. It's one of the strangest openings of any poem in English. Thou still unravished bride of quietness. I think I could talk for an hour about how strange that line is. First of all, yeah, thou, he's talking to an urn. This is good. Isn't mm-hmm. it good? It's just so ordinary. It's so, I don't know, like you say, it's it's so grounded and almost common. And and from it, he can pull so much. Like, he's mining all of the great ore from 
from this vein, yeah. from this urn. Like he's pulling every every gold's nugget that he can from it. And would it be less? Would he be? Would he mine less from this if he wasn't directly addressing it? I think so, but I might need to think a little bit about why I think that. It it's hard to describe. It creates a kind of intimacy. We could ask this question in a kind of sideways way. Can you do this in the twentieth twenty first century and not be laughed at? Can you, as a poet in twenty twenty, write thou something? Well, you wouldn't write thou. You, I mean, you remember Miwosh's watering can? Mm-hmm. I think Miwosh has this poem in mind. It's a they're very similar objects. Yeah. Yeah. And they become portals into larger meditations. But I don't think Miwosh is saying, you watering can. When I look at you, I think X, Y, and Z. Because why? Slightly silly now to our ear, to our postmodern, jaded, unfortunately cynical ear. Is this is this a technique that is now lost to us? Yeah, that's, that's a can tough... We, can we say you to a bird in a poem in 2020? This might be a, a strange, silly answer, but I'm going to say yes and no. I think... In the ode sense of address, maybe not. Like maybe you can't say you bird who, you know, does this and lives like, like winged the... dryad from the trees. We certainly yeah. couldn't say that. No, but maybe you could like engage in a dialogue with the thing and ask questions to it directly. Like, what do you think of this? Or yeah, yeah. I wonder what you feel about death or whatever so i think it's not lost but maybe changed um we can still talk to these things and we can still address them directly but maybe not in the very ornate direct way that that keats so wonderfully uses sadly maybe not sadly depending on your temperament what we've lost is the kind of sincerity the romantic urgency Mm. it's harder for us to pull off. Sadly, we're a much more jaded society. But we can absolutely address things and ask them important questions. I think you're absolutely right. Yes and no. I could imagine writing a poem in which I ask something, an object, you, what what are you? What do you think? There's this wonderful John Ashbery poem that I love. It's called Just Walking Around. And like in most John Ashbery poems, the pronouns are never clear. So this isn't really an example of what we're talking about, but it could kind of be. The first line of that poem is, what name do I have for you? That's how he starts the poem. What name do I have for you? We don't know who he's talking about or what he's talking about, but this this is kind of maybe a version that we could pull off, you know? Mm-hmm. Lots of questioning, <clears throat> more uncertainty, but still the intimacy is preserved. The intimacy is preserved, which I think is is a lot. That's not nothing. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Thou still unravished bride of quietness. So still is a wonderful word because I promise this is not me interpreting the poem. But, you know, obviously still can mean yet, like you are not yet ravished, you know, mm-hmm. but still can mean you're not moving or you're quiet. Yeah. It's a wonderful word. The still unravished bride of quietness. So 
the first thought that enters Keats's mind when he looks on this urn is, you know what that urn reminds me of? A bride who has not yet consummated her marriage. <laughs> yeah. A, a bride who is married to quietness. So your husband is, or maybe that's not what of quietness means. It could be your husband is quietness, or maybe you are a bri- you are quietness. You have come from quietness. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. that's what it means. It's just like, all I want, all I'm trying to do right now is highlight how absolutely bizarre. It's such a bizarre line. It is. And I really love being able to read it in these different ways too. I feel like nothing is lost from having these multiple meanings or interpretations. It's just, it's a lot of fun. It is very, it does make, this is one of the reasons why the poem is highly rereadable because every time you come into this line, it shines in a new way. Yeah. And the question is, we don't maybe have time to ask this question, but how do you write lines of poetry like that that aren't totally opaque and confusing? Because you could you could imagine this poem in workshop, somebody saying, what does this line mean? Does it mean that she's married to quietness? What is what does the sexual status of this bride have anything to do with an urn? How are you using the word still? Come on, John, can you please clarify all of these questions? There's too much on there's too much ambiguity in this line and i don't have an answer to this question but he just keeps all of that wonderful ambiguity in yeah i don't know how lines like this succeed and when they fail it's very tricky um okay so we'll keep going it's 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 a bizarre poem already we don't have time to read it all but he's looking at the so this grecian urn is it has pictures on it it has like pictures of men and gods and maidens and he's asking questions you know, so just already in the first stanza, what men or gods are these? He's trying to decipher these very small yeah, illustrations on this urn. What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? So there, I think there is something here that he's teaching us about what makes great poetry. Yeah. I think certainly the inclusion of of questions themselves is important, but it also makes me feel that that Keats is advocating for poetry as a method of just wondering and and trying to figure things out. Like poems don't have to be really didactic or to have all the answers. Right. Beautiful, Beautiful poems can come from just thinking about stuff and Excellent. not having answers. I think this is so true. So they, one reason this is a great poem is because its first line surprises us. Second is because its first line creates an intimacy, a surprising intimacy with this object. Another reason is because it, it just gives us a mind that seems alive in the moment. This is what you mean by not didactic. It doesn't come, I have spent some time meditating and here are my, conclusions instead of giving us conclusions it gives us an alive experience Mm -hmm. it asks questions and then it reacts to the questions that it itself has asked so good poems are dynamic and changing they ask questions literally and are prepared to move in surprising ways based on where those questions lead 
you know, you get the sense at the end of this first stanza that Keats has no idea where this thought will go yeah. or where this poem will go. What am I looking at? What wild ex? Who are these people? So this is a wonderful kind of, you know, Frost has that wonderful metaphor of a piece of ice on a hot stove. The great poem has to ride its own melting. Keats is willing to let the thought go where it will go. Yeah, and that actually makes me think of something that Mike White said when he was here for the English reading series that in his poems, he often starts with an image and kind of runs with that image for a while and lets it help him arrive at some memory or grander thing. And, you know, a lot of, of people when they write poems, myself included, will start with the memory and try to find images to suit it. Mm. But, but Keats here is just, he's starting with the urn and he's saying, take me wherever you want to take me and I'll go there. And right. I, I think that there's like something really liberating about that in writing poetry that, you know, I have this object and I'm going to think about it and write about it and just observe it. And whatever it tells me, whatever questions I have for it, that's what I'm going to focus on. And, you know, come what may, I'll, I'll end up where I end up. And, and that's really exciting, I think. This is so great. That's exactly right. Come what may. So this, this is true on two levels. It's true on the level of composition. Like as a poet at your desk, you have to insist on surprising yourself. And one way of, of doing that is to, yeah, not have any foregone conclusions before you begin a poem. Put an object in front of you and say, what is this and what does it mean to me? I don't know. Let's find out and start typing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a, a, an incredibly crude synopsis of this poem. Um, what is this object and what does it mean to me? I don't know, but I'll start typing scribbling with my quill, whatever, you know? Um, so it works on the, it works behind the curtain. It works backstage on the level of composition. This is, this is a very important part of composing poetry, but I think Keats embeds this into the poem. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. he knows that this process of discovery is poetic and will make poetry. Yeah. So he doesn't, finish the meditation and then start writing the poem. The first line, the conclusion that I came to is, no, no, no. The poem is the act of questioning. The poem is the act of the discovery. So he asks, who are these people on this urn? They, they have lives. It's like that moment when you walk through, it's hard to do in the States, but you've been to Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, remember those moments when you're walking through an old city and, you know, it's just, you're not a tourist attraction, not a big famous place, but you're just walking and suddenly there's like an old nameless church that was built 200 years ago. And you walk up to it and there's like a window, an original window. And uh, it's, it's kind of like multi-paned. And inside the window is like a a square of blue glass, but like tilted. So it's like a diamond. You think somebody 200 years ago cut that piece of glass and somebody put it in and then they ate lunch. You know, they, they paused their work day and ate lunch and they were looking at this blue pane of glass that they just put in and what were they eating for lunch? And what was their name? And was it a Tuesday or a Saturday? And did they have sick kids? You know, 
This is what Keats is doing. Who, who are these people? Like they're just illustrations, but he's teaching us that I think part of a poetic, part of a, a poet's imagination needs to be extreme curiosity. Yeah. Extreme curiosity, like curiosity on steroids. Who are these people? This immediately leads to heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes play on. And the act of asking himself, who are you and what do you mean, leads him to utter one of the most famous and important lines of all English poetry. Mm-hmm. It leads him to this epiphany. Oh, I get it now. Songs are good, but songs we can't hear but have to imagine are better. That's so cool. It's so cool, you know? So, okay, Mr. Pipe Man, play on, you know? And you two lovers who are about to kiss on the urn, don't be sad that you'll never kiss. Be happy that you're always about to. Yeah. And and be happy that your beauty will never fade. Like, oh, man. You'll always be this beautiful. For forever wilt thou love and she be fair. You know, you'll always be in love and she'll always be beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is a prize. Let's remind everybody listening and ourselves that this is written by a man who at this point I think has suspicions that he's dying. Mm-hmm. Or, or at the very least knows that life is fragile. He's watched his brother die of tuberculosis. Um he's very and his brother died very young. So when when Keats says, don't worry, you will always be alive and you will always be in love and she will always be young and beautiful. He has a kind of moral authority or a kind of emotional urgency mm-hmm. that we can't forget, I think. It's important. And this leads to the next stanza, all of these happies. It's like, we can't, this is a hard stanza to pull off. Happy, happy bows, happy melodist, happy love, more happy, happy love. That sounds hard to write, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> I just think in context, it, it he pulls it off because if we think about the biography and his 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 urgent rejoicing in what these people have that he knows he can't have, let's let him be happy. That's my opinion. Instead of like mocking this kind yeah. of poetry for being too excessively romantic and cheesy, let's let him be happy. What do you think about this stanza? Who are these coming to the sacrifice? <laughs> to what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadst thou that heifer lowing at the skies and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of its folk this pious morn? And little town thy streets forevermore will silent be and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. It's like 12 things are so great about this stanza. Yeah, I mean, hopefully I can hit two or three at least. But (laughs) first, I love that he's gone back to this mode of questioning. Very good. there There are still more questions to be asked here, and there's still more things worthy of exploration on this urn. And the other one that really stands out to me goes back to what you said about the the poetic imagination. I think that he sees this town on the urn and its people. And what does he do? He decides to start thinking about that town now and like how the people must be gone and how sad that is. Like, I don't know. It's, 
it's it's really great but it's it is a sad thing to to think about it's kind of like going back to your stained glass window example like wondering you know i hope that guy had a good life i i wonder yeah. if his kids grew up to do great things and i don't know it, it feels similar here in in this stanza with what he's doing this is so excellent those might be the top two reasons i love this it's not just that Keats asks questions, and it's not just that he lets those questions lead him into surprising answers, but as you say very wisely, he then lets himself circle back into more questions. He's never done with the questioning. The questioning never ends. Mm -hmm. And that creates poems that are they're kind of like little dramatic, they're little dramas you know, of thought, little dramas of thought and feeling. He'll ask a question, find some tentative answers, and then go back to questioning. They're little dialogues with the self. So we can, we can, I think we can directly export this into our own poetry. Start with a question, surprise yourself with where it leads to, and then see what new questions you can add to this interplay. Hesitation and questioning, hesitation and questioning, back and forth. And then Danny, just as you say, <laughs> this giant crowd, <clears throat> this crowd must mean that some poor town is empty because everyone's here. So somewhere there are buildings that are empty and he's like a monster of empathy, you know, Keats. He's like the superhero, the Thanatos. <laughs> uh, uh, that's not the word, the guy's name. Thanos. It's Thanos. Is, is that the guy's name? It's been a while. Yes. The Thanos of empathy. He's like got all of the rings of power of empathy and uh, he can empathize with towns I feel so bad for that town. It must be emptied of its people, you know? Yeah. And you're silent now. And who is there left to tell how desolate you are? I will. I guess I will. What a surprise. Yeah. And I think it also just further highlights how awesome this ordinary urn is. Like, how cool are you, urn, to be able to preserve this town and its people that aren't there anymore? Like, They've all moved from mortality to the immortality of this urn. That's really awesome. I love that. You could imagine Keats could have written an ode on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, mm -hmm. or an ode on the Mona Lisa, but it's just some anonymous urn. It's not even like a named one. It's not even a famous one. Yeah. It's just one, you know, some kind of anonymous, semi-forgettable, not forgettable, you know, a thing of beauty is a joy forever, but yeah, you make a good point. It's just like, I, I don't want to let this common quote unquote object be forgotten. It's worth my attention. It's worth my deep superhuman powers of empathy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I keep thinking of Miwosh and his, and his watering can. This is, this is becoming a kind of common attribute of great poets. Yeah. Pour out, extreme amounts of empathy and curiosity and attention on objects that don't at first glance seem to deserve that kind of empathy and attention. What do you think about this beauty is truth? We should move on to a couple other poems, but I don't know. I feel like we're getting a kind of cryptic little message here. And you know how I feel about cryptic messages in poems. Yes. <laughs> I don't quite like them. I'm, I'm not at all saying I don't like the end of this poem, but as a lover of this poem, can you please express your love for this ending without, quote unquote, solving the riddle? 
does this does this make sense? This request? Yes. And so I don't I don't want you to explain the philosophy of this ending. Okay. I don't want you to tell us what mm. it quote unquote means. I just want you to express why you love it. Okay. So I have a theory of philosophy and why I love it. I'm going to avoid it. But no, maybe no, maybe I, I okay. should have yeah, followed that up. Maybe the reason why you love it has a lot to do with what it teaches you okay you know what i mean so you you could kind of kill two birds with one stone here okay so two reasons i think first i think it it cryptically but properly just caps off the the images and the the themes that we're finding in all of these stanzas that the things that are really beautiful are the ones that last. Um, so the lovers on the urn who are just about to kiss for eternity, that's beautiful because they'll never fade. They'll never change. So I, I think that there is a sort of beauty in permanence for Keats. But the other reason that I love it so much is that he's, he's philosophizing to the urn. <laughs> like, He's, he's telling it, you know, this is, this is all that you know, Ern, that this great philosophical truth, and it's all you need to know to, to stay beautiful. <laughs> like, you don't need to know anything else about death and impermanence. Um, you're perfect the way that you are, knowing um, all, of this, all of this stuff about beauty and being able to last. That's, that's what makes you so great and the implication is that this is all any of us need to know yeah beauty is truth truth beauty so we could ask ourselves well is that really true there are true things that are not beautiful there might be beautiful things that are lies that's not really that's not really the point yeah the point is that there's something about fictions novels aren't true but they're kind of this goes back to dickinson tell the truth but tell it slant they Beauty is the truth slantwise, even if it's lies. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting the poem. Oh, no. I, my interpretation <laughs> detectors went off. No, this is good. And, yeah, the whole attitude that he's, like, conversing with this urn. And the urn is kind of, like, talking back or listening or both. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. We should move on. We have, yeah, f- maybe 15-ish minutes to talk about another couple poems we should really do nightingale and uh, autumn we'll save there are chunks of eve of saint agnes that i'll save for the class and son, a few sonnets we'll save for the class i think ode uh on melancholy is an extremely beautiful poem that we'll yeah. talk about in class what should we do about nightingale i guess i'll just read it is it too long to read probably not i think we can do it yeah i'll read it and then okay but before i read it Let's go through a list of what we've talked about. Why is Keats a great poet and what can he teach us? Speak directly to objects and things to create intimacy. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, empathy. Extreme levels of empathy. Uh, loading rifts with ore. Lushness. Mm-hmm. Um, you, said at the very, you said at the very beginning that he is very good at combining senses. He appeals to all of the senses, and this is this is the poem that we're about to read to do that. So appeal yes. to all of the senses. What else have we said? Talks about 
<clears throat> questions and, and letting them guide the writing. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. So let questions guide you. Go into the unknown. Write about what you don't know. And enact the back and forth of the questioning in the poem. Make the poem an alive experience like that. Something yeah. that isn't predetermined and finished, but organic and moving in itself, right? So um, I'll read this poem. Before I do, I also want to just, like lecturing like this, but there is something about the form of these poems that I think is, is important to highlight. Keats is um, this ode form. What is this ode form? It's this kind of extended yet controlled. He doesn't invent this form, but he kind of perfects it. If you look at these, the rhyme scheme here, Pains, so I'm now looking at the first stanza of Ode to a Nightingale. Pains, drunk, drains, sunk. This is a, a quintessential Shakespearean quatrain from a Shakespearean sonnet, A, B, A, B. But then we get lot, happiness, trees, plot, numberless ease. What we have here is six lines that rhyme just like the sestet in a Petrarchan sonnet. So he writes a lot of sonnets and he writes a lot of great sonnets. And then he writes these kind of semi-failed epics like Endymion and Hyperion. And these kind of are dead ends for him. They don't really go anywhere. They're kind of long and we don't really have time to talk about why they don't succeed per se. But I think one reason why these odes are so great is because what Keats achieves in them is a formal balance between the sonnets that he practiced so much of and the large expansive kind of epic form that he wanted to pull off. So we have a shrunk sonnet. We have a Shakespearean quatrain on top of a Petrarchan sestet. It's kind of a mini sonnet and we have an undetermined number of them. So sometimes like in Ode to a Nightingale, we have a lot of them, mm -hmm. no set number of them. I'll just talk until I'm done talking. Maybe that will be eight of them. Maybe that will just be three of them. The point I'm just trying to make is that we can't ignore the form and the form is this wonderful balance of contracted con contraction which you see in sonnets and expansiveness which you see in epics it's, it's kind of a, a miracle a formal invention that is a total miracle it allows it allows these poems to feel both tight but expansive i hope that makes sense so as i read this poem let's spend i'll read this poem then we'll spend five minutes talking about how it's Questioning, empathetic, tight and expansive, hesitant, organic, alive, lush, sensory. <laughs> Too much to do. Okay, here we go. Ode to a Nightingale. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and leafy words had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thy happiness that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green, and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple stained mouth that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim 
fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret, here where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee. Tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn, and the pastoral eglantine, fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musgroves full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I heard this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown, perhaps the selfsame song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth, when sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn, the same that oft times hath charmed magic casements, opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my sole self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades, past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? This might be my single favorite poem ever. Danny, But what's so good about this? Oh man, where do I start? The first thing that I love is that so much of the sound in this poem mimics what's being described. And I don't know how to do that, but Keats does and he does it well. Like in, even in the first line, you read all these long vowel sounds and it feels so slow and drowsy. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. Yeah. Like, I just feel the heaviness of That's this. That's great. Um, it might be, I want you to keep talking. Sorry to interrupt. It might be it. partly the stresses too. My heart aches, right? We get this three 
three heavy stresses in a row. So the poem begins slowly, mm -hmm. really slowed down. And I think that this sound thing is continued in, in the second stanza with beaded bubbles winking at the brim, like just speaking that aloud kind of mimics the sound of, of these bubbles. That's perfect. Um, That's so great. Yeah. And then uh, towards the end in the, the last couple stanzas um, of perilous seas and fairylands forlorn, forlorn, the very word is like a bell. Like you hear the ringing of the bell in this word. Excellent. Um, That's great. Throughout this poem, the sound plays to the subject matter and what's being talked about. And yeah. it, it works so well. Keats has this, I don't know if I should know this. I don't know if he ever articulates this in the letters, but he has this, um, I don't want to call it a method because that implies too much, too much imposed control. We've praised these poems for being organic and surprising, and we have to maintain that assertion. But Keats mm -hmm. loves making your mouth do a lot of work as you read his poems. So the vowels are constantly going from the front of your mouth to the back, and then the front, and then the back, and then the front, and then the back. For example, and, purple, stained, mouth, right? A, er, a, ow, right? Away, away, for I will fly to thee. Away, right? Long vowel, I can never remember what's long and what's short, but deep vowel and high-pitched vowel, away, away. Many of these lines have that exact pattern. He'll usually follow a long vowel with a short vowel and then a short vowel with a long vowel. And this gives the poems a sonic dynamism and variety and scope. That's what it does. It gives the poems a sonic scope. So it feels like every note on the scale is being hit kind of all at once, because he's going back and forth. The stanza that perfectly proves the assertion that you began our discussion with is, I cannot see what flowers are at my feet. So yeah, <laughs> how to surprise your readers as a poet? Well, flowers are beautiful, but people know that already. And there's always been these poems, flowers are beautiful. You know, I know what I'll do. I'll write about flowers at night in the dark that I can't see. So like I can tell that they're here because their scents are wafting up to me, right? Yeah. So there is the scent of them, but I don't get any visual imagery. We get their names, which are beautiful in their own. The coming musk rose full of dewy wine. The murmurous haunt of flies on summer eaves. Man. Great. The murmurous haunt. I mean, I think the murmurous haunt of flies is a phrase you could just steal. Summer eaves, we don't say eaves anymore, but you could say the murmurous haunt of flies on summer evenings in a poem now. I mean, you could say so much. There's actually only about 10% of this poem that is too old fashioned sounding to say. You couldn't really say my heart aches. You couldn't say thee and thou. You couldn't say oh, but you could certainly say a beaker full of the warm south. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I want, why is alcohol great? Because it, 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 it puts into a, I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've been told it, it casks. It's a kind of Grecian urn. It, it bottles up forever. The season of that vintage mm -hmm. forever, you know, a beaker full of not just grape juice, but a whole geography 
you know? Yeah. The whole temperature. To the point where you can actually smell and taste those places. And like the whole South, all of Provence is like distilled totally. in that bottle. And, and now in this poem, it's so cool. That's exactly right. It's not just the weather. It's not, it's, this is Keats's like, he sees the people on the urn and then he imagines the town they came from. He sees the bottle of wine and then thinks, what dance were they performing in this festival when they were harvesting the grapes? You yeah. know, that dance that they were performing is here in this bottle, not just here in my bottle. It, ha it has stained my lips, you know, I mean, it hasn't cause he's longing for this. Like, Oh, if only I could have this. It's another thing I love about Keats. He's like this opium <laughs> wine, the fume of poppies, you know, mm -hmm. some kind of wonderful half. He's the poet of suspended consciousness, half suspended consciousness. Do I wake or sleep? What's one reason I might, I love sleep so much is because it feels like a drug. I think. Yeah. Anyway, we're running out of time. Last praise for Nightingale. So much more to say about this. I love that Keats is so open and admiring towards the potential of poetry and, and what it can do. Like, maybe I won't follow the Nightingale in wine, but I can follow you through poetry. That's and right. Through poetry, I can fly. I can arrive at all these you know, beautiful places. And I just, I appreciate that he's so unashamed of, of poetry and its its potential. Yeah, I love it. Also, another thing I didn't highlight is the, we talked about the back and forth, how one line will kind of surprise him into the next. Yeah. The kind of questioning. So like, and with the fade away into the forest dim, it's like, well, now that you mentioned fading away, fade far away, you know? So Mm -hmm. You get an enacted sense of an organic growing experience. As you say about the forlorn, he says the word or writes the word forlorn. He's like, oh yeah, I'm writing a poem. Forlorn. The act of describing the reverie is also what brings him out of the reverie. Mm -hmm. I just love this embodied. It's like we're in Keats's experience. Okay. I am sorry to keep you, but can we just spend five minutes praising two autumn? Please, yeah. <clears throat> it's pretty short. Let's just read it and then praise it for five minutes. Are you really okay, time-wise? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, sorry. Oh, let me just preface this by saying, this comes after two very miserable years in which there are no harvests, almost mm -hmm. no springs and summers. Crops are dying actually all over Europe. It has to do with this tambora volcano. You can Google it, the, the year without a spring or the year without a summer, I can't remember. And Keats is coughing you know, badly. He knows he's dying. And the cold weather is making this worse. And then suddenly, for the first time in like two or three years, there is a harvest. There is an autumn. There is like this wonderful, warm, golden, lush season. Keep that in mind as you read. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Close bosom friend of the maturing sun. Conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees, and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, 
to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed in the fumes of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swath in all its twined flowers. And sometimes like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with patient look, thou watchest the last oozings hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too, while barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the steep plains with rosy hue. Then in a wailful choir, the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly born. Hedge crickets sing. And now with treble soft, the red breast whistles from the garden croft and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Praise it, Danny. Okay, <laughs> I can do that. Um, so I love, love, love just the the texture of the sounds that are going on here. Like the whole poem feels wavy and soft and gentle. Like thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind. I, I see wheat fields and like this wavy grass that's just going back and forth. I love the the leftover bits of autumn just sitting carelessly on the granary floor. That's such a great image to me. Yeah. The stubble plains with the rosy hue, that's beautiful. And just these birds that are kind of gently circling in the skies and the cider press that's, I don't know, just autumn, the season watching as this press just keeps pressing over and over again. Like that's how right. great is that, that we have this harvest? That's right. The last oozings. It's like, oh, oozings. If you can work in the word oozings into a poem. Yeah. Like it's so, it's so surprising. And normally I associate oozings with gross things. Yeah. But here it's, <laughs> it's used so beautifully. Like, oh, it's so beautiful. I don't know how he does it. It's so good. And I love this too at the, at the, in the first stanza, like, yeah, apples, moss, cottage trees. First of all, there's something wonderful with the cadence, like conspiring with him, this, you, Autumn, conspire with the sun, how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the fat sheaves run. Mm -hmm. All those monosyllables, you almost run out of breath saying it. So it's like there's so much bounty that you lose your breath because the line is so long and the sentence just keeps going. To bend with apples the mossed cottage trees, to plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more. Yeah. <laughs> one, one more isn't enough. More, 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 right? It's like extremely exuberant. Isn't autumn the best? More. It just, that's when the earth keeps giving us more and more and more. Even the bees are fooled for a while into thinking that these warm days will never end. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And then, um, you know, like, talk about questioning. 
where are the songs of spring? I mean, autumn is kind of bittersweet because we know it comes after autumn. Yeah. Uh, the season is dying in a way. Yeah, it's a season of, of mellow fruitfulness, but it uh, is a harbinger of death and decay in its own way. So the poem suddenly stops and does what we've praised other poems for doing and says, wait a minute, this is a season of dying. What about that season of rebirth, spring? Where are the songs of spring? Isn't youth better than old age? Isn't health better than sickness? Isn't spring better than autumn? And immediately the poem says, no, kind of. Don't think about spring. You, Thou hast thy music too. Things that are in decay, things that are aging, things that are about to be over are full of sweetness because they're about to end. Even the gnats. Yeah. Even the gnats. Let's celebrate even, even the gnats. Okay, I'll do one more thing, then I'll let you go, Danny. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to reread the last few lines, and then I'm going to read uh, the last few lines of Sunday Morning by Wallace Stevens to okay. prove to people that you can you can be writing decades after. Wallace Stevens is writing, you know, after or during World War One. He knows he has reason enough to be jaded and to not be a romantic with a capital R, but he knows that Keats can teach him how to write poetry. And he knows that imitating Keats will teach him much more than not imitating Keats. So Keats says, and full grown lambs loud bleat from hilly born, hedge crickets sing. And now with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. At the end of Sunday morning by Wallace Stevens, Wallace Stevens, I think basically just tries to rewrite that exact same stanza in different language. So if you Google Sunday morning by Wallace Stevens and go right to the very end, instead of hedge cricket sing, Wallace Stevens says, deer walk upon our mountains and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness and in the isolation of the sky at evening, casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. I mean, that is Keats. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like so loudly Keats. It's not even it's not even Wallace Stevens trying to sound not like Keats. He just wants to sound like Keats. Yeah, definitely. So we don't have to not sound like Keats, I think, is the, is the lesson. What do you think, Danny? Last, last comments, last thoughts? Keats is this poet who just is so good at making his poems beautiful and ripe with great images he just packs it like bursting at the seams with this great imagery and yeah i think going back to that um that letter to shelley of you know filling every rift with ore i kind of see the same sentiment echoed into autumn where he says fill all fruit with ripeness to the core to be like keats to sound like keats you have to pack your poems with beauty. And like for Keats, I think that comes from his images, his sounds, his, I don't know, his, his introspection on ordinary. And I, I don't feel like any line in these odes especially is wasted. Oh, that's so true. That's a perfect way of saying it. No line is wasted. No syllable is wasted. 
you know, yeah. he sets budding more and still more images for us to enjoy. I don't want to get morbid or annoying, but you know, he, he, I don't know. We should stop probably, but <laughs> it could be the result of knowing that you don't have much longer to live. And I do want to talk in the class about how we think of Keats as this kind of born genius wonder kid, you know, mm-hmm. who already came out of the womb knowing how to write poetry. This is not true. No. He had so many failures. For each of these successes, there's like 10 failures that we don't read anymore. We should we need to talk about this more in the class in the Zoom chat. But yeah, be beautiful. Don't let the cynicism and irony and jaded hipsterness of our age convince you that beauty isn't eternal. Mm-hmm. Beautiful things will always be beautiful and therefore true. Absolutely. End of, end of sermon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, you too, Michael. Thank you. See you Monday, I guess. Yep. Okay. Bye. See ya. So the writing prompt for the day, I promised that this writing prompt would help us start flexing our empathy muscles. And I hope that it will, but this prompt requires a little bit of context, a little bit of setup. This is from an extremely great biography of John Keats by W. Jackson Bate. This book taught me so much about how to think about writing poetry. I really recommend it to everyone. I wanted to read a few moments from this biography to put us in the mindset of John Keats. There's two or three little anecdotes, tiny little anecdotes I wanted to share to contextualize this writing prompt. One of Keats's friends writes about a moment where he was watching Keats read from Spencer's Fairy Queen. And Keats was reading silently and then suddenly sat up. He had gotten to a moment when, when Spencer is describing whales, and Spencer's language is sea-shouldering whales. And this is what John Keats's friend wrote about this moment, that Keats, quote, hoisted himself up and looked burly and dominant, And then Keats said, what an image that is, sea-shouldering whales. Keats had a gift for empathetic kind of concentration or transportation, that what he was feeling in that moment was intense and immediate sympathy for these whales, these creatures who had to shoulder the weight of the entire ocean, sea-shouldering whales. In that same negative capability letter, is a description of a snail withdrawing into its shell. So this is Keats writing. He has left nothing to say about nothing or anything. For look at snails. You know what he says about snails. You know where he talks about cockled snails. Well, this is in the Venus and Adonis. Again, Keats is reading Shakespeare. So now he's quoting Shakespeare. As the snail whose tender horns being hit shrinks back into his shelly cave with pain, and there all smothered up in shade doth sit, long after fearing to put forth again. Keats is quoting this in a letter, signaling this out as a great moment of poetry. Again, this is a signal that Keats's mind is intensely empathetic towards the smallest or strangest or most foreign creatures, feeling sympathy for a snail who retreats into its cave with pain after its little antenna are hit. One more. Keats's friend Severin writes of an account of walking with Keats on the Hampstead Heath. And Severin writes that nothing could bring Keats out of, quote, one of his fits of seeming gloomful reverie, unquote, 
as much as watching this kind of organic oceanic movement of the wheat fields in wind, what Keats called the inland sea. Severin writes that Keats would, quote, stand leaning forward and watch with a serene look in his eyes and sometimes with a slight smile. Keats would cry, the tide, the tide, and then spring on to some stile or upon the low bough of a wayside tree and watch the passage of the wind upon the meadow grasses or the young corn, not stirring till the flow of air was all around him. Severin continues, nothing seemed to escape him, meaning Keats. The song of a bird and the undernote of response from cover at her hedge, the rustle of some animal, the changing of the green and brown lights and furtive shadows, the motions of the wind, just how it took certain tall flowers and plants and the wayfaring of the clouds, even the features and gestures of passing tramps, the color of one woman's hair, the smile on one child's face, the furtive animalism below the deceptive humanity in many of the vagrants, even the hats, clothes, shoes, wherever these conveyed the smallest hint as to the real self of the wearer. Unquote. So, <clears throat> for this writing prompt, I want you to think of something small or strange or alien or far away. A snail or a vagrant or a vagrant's hat or a flower that's bent over with rain or wind or a whale that has to live under the pressure of the ocean. And really try, close your eyes, and really try to empathize with this thing or creature or object or person. What would it feel like to exist in that form? What would it feel like to exist in that form? What would give you pleasure? What would give you pain? What would you be afraid of? What would you desire? And then start taking notes. This is a free write, as most of these prompts usually are. And then just start taking notes. Hopefully, maybe, eventually, this could turn into a poem. Now, the poem of the day. Many, many, many elegies and poems in honor of John Keats have been written throughout the years by his contemporaries and by our contemporaries. Undoubtedly, the best of these is the elegy called Adonais, written by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's definitely one of my favorite poems, probably in my top ten. Don't have time to read all of it. It's very long. I would, however, like to read a few of the closing stanzas. Whenever Shelley says Adonais, this is simply a pseudonym that Shelley has adopted, and it refers to Keats. So these stanzas come near and then at the very end of this elegy. Peace, peace, he is not dead. He doth not sleep. He hath awakened from the dream of life. Tis we, who lost in stormy visions, keep with phantoms an unprofitable strife, and in mad trance strike with our spirit's knife invulnerable nothings. We decay like corpses in a charnel. Fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day, and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. He has outsoared the shadow of our night, envy and calumny and hate and pain, and that unrest which men miscall delight can touch him not and torture not again. From the contagion of the world's slow stain, he is secure, and now can never mourn a heart grown cold, a head grown gray in vain, nor when the spirit's self has ceased to burn with sparkless ashes load an unlamented urn. 
He lives. He wakes. Tis death is dead, not he. Mourn not for Adonais, though young dawn turn all thy dew to splendor, for from thee the spirit thou lamentest is not gone. Ye caverns and ye forests, cease to moan. Cease, ye faint flowers and fountains, and thou air, which like a morning veil thy scarf hadst thrown o'er the abandoned earth, now leave it bare even to the joyous stars which smile on its despair. He is made one with nature. There is heard his voice in all her music, from the moan of thunder to the song of night's sweet bird, He is a presence to be felt and known in darkness and in light, from herb and stone, spreading itself where'er that power may move, which has withdrawn his being to its own, which wields the world with never-wearied love, sustains it from beneath, and kindles it above. He is a portion of the loveliness which once he made more lovely. He doth bear his part, while the one spirit's plastic stress sweeps through the dull, dense world, compelling there all new successions to the forms they wear, torturing the unwilling dross that checks its flight to its own likeness, as each mass may bear, and bursting in its beauty and its might from trees and beasts and men into the heaven's light. The One Remains The many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines. Earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many-colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die if thou wouldst be that which thou dost seek. Follow where all is fled, Rome's azure sky, flowers, ruins, statues, music, words are weak, the glory they transfuse with fitting truth to speak. Why linger? Why turn back? Why shrink, my heart? Thy hopes are gone before. From all things here they have departed. Thou shouldst now depart. A light is passed from the revolving year, and man and woman. And what still is dear attracts to crush, repels to make thee wither. The soft sky smiles, the low wind whispers near. Tis Adonais calls, O hasten thither. No more let life divide what death can join together. That life whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not, that sustaining love which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea burns bright or dim, as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst now beams on me, consuming the last clouds of cold mortality. The breath whose might I have invoked in song descends on me. My spirit's bark is driven far from the shore, far from the trembling throng, whose sails were never to the tempest given. The massy earth and spherid skies are riven. I am born darkly, fearfully afar, whilst, burning through the inmost veil of heaven, the soul of Adonais, like a star, beckons from the abode where the eternal are.
So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this discussion about Keats. In the next recording, I will be chatting uh, with my wife, Claire, about the poetry of Andrew Marvell, so keep your eye out for that. In the meantime, keep writing, keep reading, keep trying to imagine the state of other beings and entities and creatures, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm-hmm.